You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So I got I to gotta say, this is in my top 10 podcasts, I think, that of interviews I've done. It's with Russ Roberts, who's the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem, and the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He hosts the award-winning weekly podcast, Econ Talk, and he's written a number of books, but his newest one is called Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. Um, I think you, he, he is just so clear and concise in his communication. He doesn't just agree with things I say. He, he disagrees with things, but then does it with kindness and clarity. Anyway, it really, I really enjoyed the spot. I think you will, too. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Russ Roberts, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Towards the end of your new book, you write, quote, when I argue that there are parts of life outside the reach of science or the scientific method, I'm sometimes called irrational or anti-science. But using science where it belongs and not using it where it does not belong is the essence of good science, end quote. And that really strikes at the core of this phenomenon that you call wild problems. So let's start with you sort of defining, describing what, what a wild problem is. So in that sentence that thing you just read, the, the most important word there is good. <laughs> okay. Good science. Uh, it, it's things that are, quote, scientific uh, can often mislead us, meaning they have numbers associated with them or various other uh, things, Greek letters that make people think, oh, wow, this is peer reviewed, must be true. Right. Uh, but a lot of times, unfortunately, the things that we learn from the scientific enterprise aren't true. And the essence of good science is figuring out 
uh, what those things are and uh, not using science where it doesn't belong. And my claim is that many of the biggest problems that we face in our personal life are precisely those kind of problems, places in our lives where we face a fork in the road, a decision to make. And we'd we'd like to use a recommendation from Amazon or Spotify or Netflix about what to do next. And there just isn't one. And so then we'd say, well, I I need to get more information. Usually getting more information is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a bad idea. But the challenge is, is to use it wisely and to be aware of the fact that for many of life's problems, and these are problems like whether to marry, who to marry, whether to have children, how many children, kind of career to pursue. These are often questions where the data that might be available are often misleading. Mm-hmm. And uh, and therefore, you need a different approach. And what I try to do in my book, it's not a how-to book. It's, it's not a algorithm for how to live. It's a way of thinking about the challenge of how to live, how to think about when what to do when we face these kind of problems that are especially frustrating in the modern world because we're so used to so-called rational approaches that do often make our lives better. I use the example in the book of navigation, Waze or Google Maps, other forms of online things that help us get from point A to point B. They are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now I'm old. I used to, I remember what a map looked like. I remember what it was like to roll down your window and ask a, sure. a stranger if they knew where something was. And often they'd give you a convoluted set of directions. You didn't help. Waze is fabulous. Uh, what it's not good for is telling you whether you should go to B, point B in the first place. And I think we should spend more time thinking about where we're headed and less time making sure we get there as quickly as possible. The problem is the tools that get us there quickly as possible are so seductive and they work so well and we're so addicted to them that when we get to a place in our life where we don't have that tool, we don't have the app, we're kind of thinking, well, well now what? What do I do now? And um, so that's what my book's trying to help people with. And we should note that you uh, you studied uh, economics at the University of Chicago. And I'm curious when you're was that st- was Milton Friedman reigning large when you were there? When I was there, uh, Milton Friedman, it was his last year. Wow. He was about to go to Stanford. Mm-hmm. And he offered for the entering first year students, which were, was my class, uh, a seminar that had no credit where he would show up once or twice a week. I can't remember. And we could ask him anything we wanted. It was like AMA, Ask Me Anything in uh, 1976, I think it was. And so we would typically ask him questions off of old exams that we were studying and preparing that we couldn't answer. It was very exciting that he sometimes couldn't answer them either. That was, uh, I'd like to think he did that on purpose, but I don't think he did. Um, So Milton Friedman was there. George Stigler was there. Gary Becker, Robert Lucas. It was a lovely... That's intellectual, extraordinary intellectual experience, actually. Yeah. And and it's so interesting now with people like Richard Taylor uh, at at that school that, you know, it's really flipped on its head. And, and, you know, (laughs) Friedman comes up so often in these podcast tapings as as a sort of double figure, Mm -hmm. uh, in part because I just think those sort of that, that kind of either or thinking, that kind of zero sum thinking has really led to some disastrous results in not just the business world, but the culture writ large. And I think like just reading the paper today, I think you can see that uh, as a, a as a root. Do, do you see what I'm saying? 
Yeah, I don't agree with you. Um, okay. I, I, part of my book is rebellion against my training at Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, which was the relentless application of economics to every piece of life, and in particular, a, a toolkit that economists are given, and they're still given this, and they're given it everywhere in the country, which is the idea of maximization, right. sometimes called optimization. And it's constrained maximization because you can't have everything you want. You have a finite amount of income. You have a finite amount of time. And so economics is, to in, modern economics is in, in many senses an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. What's the way to use my limited income to produce the greatest amount of well-being or happiness or satisfaction that I can that I can manage. And I try to argue in the book that it's not really the right way to think about how you should live your life. Maybe it's not, it may be a useful way to do social science and look at how other people behave because we can't get inside their heads and we have to make some working assumptions about what they do. But my point is, is it is that maximization in certain parts of life or getting the most out of certain say relationships is not the right way to think about it. So take an obvious example, uh, I don't really think it's healthy to think about how can I exploit my wife as effectively as possible so that I'll be really happy right. and that uh, she's maybe either unhappy or doesn't know that I'm taking advantage of her. But, hey, what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her. I think that's disgusting, not productive. So a little bit of that in modern economics. And I think that's a mistake. And um, I think what you're worrying about is a different issue, a different mm-hmm. part of the Chicago school. We can talk about that too if you want, yeah. but it's not, I don't think it's exactly what I'm worried about. So, well, it's interesting. So you bring up marriage and there was a, a line in your book that I really responded to. You say, quote, the willingness of married people to share the experience of marriage is quite rare. End quote. I, hadn't, I don't think I've ever seen anyone say that before. And I think it's quite true. Yeah. I, it, at least, the, it, and actually less true, I think for myself and my wife, we actually do discuss what we both came from first marriages that failed. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, but what's at work there with people not talking about that? So I was interested in, in this fascinating historical moment when at the age of 29, Charles Darwin was trying to decide whether to get married. And he makes a list of pluses and minuses of getting married or staying single. And it's a, it's, it's fascinating. It's an embarrassing list because he is from a different time and his view of what married life is going to be like is really not a very attractive picture of himself, as it turns out. But the part of it that's fascinating to me, the part that I thought is at the heart of this book, is that he doesn't really have access to what marriage is like, it, it, the inner life. He sees, probably has married friends. He might go over to their house for dinner. He sees them interacting casually and maybe with some level of intimacy or, or uh, it might reveal things to him that he's, that he's sensitive to and, and becomes aware of. But the real experience of marriage, what it's like to be married to a, a, the same person for a long period of time is something that most married people don't talk about mm-hmm. and wouldn't probably know how to talk about it if, um, if they wanted to. I, I have four children and I realized that I, I've never spoken to them about my marriage. I've never told them what I think is, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, tell them secrets about what's good and bad about it, but why marriage is something worth thinking about. And I think we live in an era where that's out of fashion for sure. And I, I'm trying to suggest when I say they don't share the experience, probably out of fashion in Darwin's time as well, Mm -hmm. when 
first of all, people were more private then. And secondly, the language of what married life is like, both the pluses and the minuses, and there's plenty of both, is just not easily uh, learned by married people. So they don't talk about it. I mean, you could, t- you know, in previous generations, certainly our grandparents um, and their grandparents, you know, it's a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, I never heard my parents, my grandparents say they loved each other. Right. That's another variation on this. You know, basically, you are walled off as a if you're not in the in the partnership, <laughs> you're not mm-hmm. in the marriage. You really don't have much access to what is going on there. And um, I just found that interesting. And I think it, it it limits our ability to make a so-called rational decision. If you don't know what you're getting into. The other theme there is that once you get married or once you have children, once you move to a different place, you'll often find what you care about changes. So anticipating the pros and cons, which is the most rational way generally to think about decision making, is not very helpful. I think it's, again, I think it misleads us. Uh, I got a call. My wife and I each got an independent call from our 24 year old son who is trying to decide his girlfriend and he need to move. And uh, this apartment that they like that they found that has both laundry and a dishwasher, which he does not have right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big one. Moving up, uh, moving up. It's, it's $200 more a month than he had presently budgeted. And yeah. he's like, how should I, and I actually appreciated that he called us. Cause he's like, how should I that's think sweet. about this? That's and sweet. And I read your book and I actually a bunch of books lately that, that sort of cover like happiness and time. And I'm like, well, think about, all right, you're going to save money on laundry because you have to go to this coin uh, laundry and getting coins right now in the United States is actually not as easy as it was no. when we were young. And so you have to go to multiple banks. So you have, you have that money. So take that off the 200. And then what is your happiness level going to be now that you don't have to constantly be cleaning dishes or running down the block for laundry and all that. So it starts to like, it starts to change that, that equation. Um, uh, and so, so there, there was a little bit of both, I think in this, there's a little bit of a wild problem. There is some sort of analytical stuff you could attach to it. Um, and you write in the book, quote, a life well-lived is something more than a pleasant life. And this is where I, I, I was sort of going with this, which is like, I, I think that we do often sort of feel like, well, I should I should be happy all the time, but like circumstances in anyone's life, there's going to be joy and suffering. There's just there's no there's no way around that. Your your parents are going to die, you know, and others are going to that that you love, and all all those things are true. So talk to us a little bit about when you're facing that 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 kind of wild problem. What, you know, what's the what's the approach you're getting at in the book? Well, you said something really interesting. You said, you know, you should be happy all the time. Uh, that's a very uh, unrealistic expectation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's not simply the fact that in real life, your parents die and things happen that are, you get sick. There's some obvious things that every human being has to confront. The, the, the point I'm really making in the book, though, is that sometimes it is wise to embrace pain, suffering, sacrifice and so on for all kinds of different reasons, ethical, uh, obviously the mm-hmm. future gains can outweigh the present pain, but that's not really the point. I, I think the more interesting case is where it's mostly pain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I give the example of returning a lost wallet uh, that no one sees you find and it has cash in it. And why not just slip it in your pocket and throw the wallet with crash or put it down back where you found it. And go on with your life. And the answer is, well, it's the wrong thing to do. And 
if you want to be a if you want to see yourself as an ethical person, uh, you should return the wallet. Now, mm-hmm. you could argue that that gives you pleasure also. So it's really all about self interest. It's all about pleasure. I don't, I don't think that's the right way right way to think about it. But to go, I want to go back to your to your twenty uh, four year old son. Yeah. The decision about whether to upgrade your apartment, get certain amenities, and lose give up some money, maybe means you've limited your choices in the future because you don't have as many, your savings get smaller. Yeah. Those are, those are fairly, sometimes it can be very frustrating to make that decision challenging because it looks like, you know, the benefits are very similar to the costs and, and, and you have trouble with it. The kind of problems I'm worrying about here are problems that define who you are. And I don't think, I don't think, you know, yeah, not having your own washing it. machine is not like a, a, an indictment. No, <laughs> I think no, it's no. okay. Yeah. Uh, so, those are a lot more difficult. So when I'm thinking about Darwin, say, and in Darwin's case, uh, he's worried that he will not be a great scientist if he gets married because he'll have to spend a lot of time with children, with his wife's relatives. He might have to leave London because his wife might not like it. Uh, those That trade-off, so your trade-off, your son's trade-off is mm, more nuisance, time loss, going looking for coins, running down to the laundromat, benefit, a little more convenient, but it's more expensive. It means I can't go out. Maybe there might be once or twice a month. I can't. We can't eat out when we used to. I can think of. I know how to think about that. Yeah, yeah. What Darwin was facing was a decision that was a lot harder because he was facing, hmm, a more meaningful domestic life that I might come to enjoy with wife and children versus being maybe the greatest scientist of all time. Now it turned out he got both. He, he mm-hmm. still became the greatest. If one of the two or three greatest scientists of all time, even though he had this these extra burdens, and he turned out he kind of he came quite became quite attached to the domestic life that he, had, as a single person, found unattractive, having to deal with the wife's relatives moving. He ended up moving. He left London. He moved into a more uh, uh, rural setting. Turned out he liked it. Didn't realize it. Thought it was going to be horrible. Liked it. Uh, his wife read to him every night. He didn't anticipate how meaningful that would be to him. He did lose some children in, in their youth, which was unbearably painful to him. So he had all this whole mix of complex response. And, you know, you could argue if he'd stayed single, he'd be an even better scientist, <laughs> which is hard to imagine. But And, of course, it's also possible that having a, a delightful partner to go through life with makes you a better scientist. Who knows? Very, all of these things are so much more complicated than the some of the day-to-day challenges we face. So what what I want the reader to think about, what I try to help the reader think about is not just what are the trade-offs when I make one decision versus another, which is the essence, the bread and butter of economic thinking, the economist's approach to decision-making. But I should also, instead of just looking at the trade-offs, I should be giving some thought to who I want to be, who I am. Who I, how I want to see myself, my identity. Do I want to be a parent? Do I want to be a spouse? Do I want to be a scientist, say, versus a poet? All the different choices we make in life have much more in them than the day-to-day. Is this going to be fun? Now, is this going to be fun? Is a relevant question. It's not irrelevant. It's important. You don't want to do something that makes you miserable, even though it might be meaningful, if you're literally going to be miserable all the time. But in general, I'm arguing that the standard calculus that decision-making usually looks at 
misses out on these deeper questions of meaning, purpose, ethics, and self-definition. And that's what I, what I think uh, we often miss if we're not careful. Um, you talk about attending a silent meditation retreat, and I've had a bunch of friends who've done this. I have never done it, and it kind of terrifies me. Which sure. is, I, I, yeah. So talk to us about like what you were thinking before, and then what yeah. experience you had. Yeah, sure. So it's a perfect example of where it's it's a it's a good example that's relatively uh, modest in its impact relative to say marriage or parenthood. But basically, if I said to you. And, you know, the analogy I use for parenting is that if you're on the outside, just like with marriage, from the outside of parenting, you look at parenting and it it looks like a very unpleasant, <laughs> difficult thing. Um, diapers, can't go on vacation when you want. The car you can have to buy is not as interesting or fun. There's a lot of obvious negatives to, ch- to being a parent. If you said to ask people without children, what's the upside? And remember, we're living in 2022. If you're living in 1400, you might say, well, somebody to bring in the crops when I break my leg. <laughs> somebody mm-hmm. take care of me in my old age. Those are generally not the reasons people have children in 2022 in, in the developed world. And people might read my book. So, like, what's the reason? And, the, and if you ask parents why they have children or why they're happy they have, ch- they have children, uh, I don't think they would say, well, because it's so much fun. It's not the reason <clears throat> that most people have children. Uh, so the um, silent meditation retreat is kind of like a microcosm of that. On the outside, it looks like a lot of downside. You can't talk for, in my case, it was five days. There was a couple exceptions, but in general, there was no talking for five days, including, by the way, you couldn't interact with the other people there, not just verbally, but silently. You're not encouraged to interact with them. Meaning if I pass you in the corridor of the building, I don't nod at you. I don't look you in the eye. I leave you alone. When I'm sitting at dinner or lunch or breakfast and the water pitcher is near you, I don't gesture and say with my hand, pass the water or point at the salt. I get up and I go get it. And if I said to you, Oh, doesn't that sound great? (laughs) You're going to look at me like I'm a lunatic. It sounds miserable. Yeah. And most of us, especially like I'm a former professor. Uh, Well, I guess I'm still a professor, but in some dimension. But I I used to teach for 30 years in the classroom. And most professors like to hear the sound of their own voice. And podcast hosts do also my experience. Mm -hmm. So here you are. Hey, this is going to be fun. Come pay people to to let you sit in silence. And by the way, the sitting is not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of us can't sit comfortably on a cushion for hours at a time or even on a chair. So, right. so the whole aspect of that, and I remember, by the way, when I came back, people would come up to me and say, oh, what was it, hey, what was it like? Could you, could you, were you able to do it? And I was so overwhelmed by the five days of silence as were a couple of the people who I went with and who I did interact with on the trip, obviously. Uh, by the way, when the trip ended and we drove back, Fred and I drove back together the first time we did this, we just sat in silence in the car. We were so overwhelmed. Really? Yeah. In, in other words, you'd think you'd go like, oh, thank goodness, I can finally talk. Hey, how are you? What's going on? Hey, what do you think? Now, we did talk eventually, but it was it was a somber, 
sober, phenomenal experience. It, here's what it reminded me of. And I think I say this in the book and it, it's cut. Maybe I did. Actually, I didn't. Um, if you've ever seen great theater, theater, not everybody likes theater and everybody likes musicals. I happen to like theater and I like musicals. So I remember the first time I saw Les Mis mm. and the intermission came and, you know, the intermission of Les Mis or Wicked, which Wicked ends uh, with um, the first act ends with I'm oh, yeah, that, defying, a, defying gravity, yeah, defying yeah. gravity. One of the greatest yep. moments in theater ever, ever created. Yes, it's the and best first I'm get, closer in modern and music. I, yeah, and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And when it ended, that first act, you know, I looked at my wife. She looked at me. We, we couldn't talk. And after a while, we finally said, I, I think I said, should we just go home? I, <laughs> I don't know if I could take, I don't know if I could take a second half. And I've had, this was so great. I don't need another act. Um, Anyway, so the point is, is that to put into words what it's like not to talk for five days, <clears throat> you'd think it's kind of obvious. What do you mean? You don't talk for five? I know what that's like. I've been quiet for 10 minutes. That means you've been quiet for five days. It's not like that. And plus, of course, there's meditation that, that is guided and you're encouraged to think, think about certain things. We did an exercise. Um, I'll just say this quickly. I know you don't want to spend the whole time on silent meditation retreats. No, it's okay. There were a number of times in that retreat where I cried like a baby and wow. they told us, they told us, uh, do not comfort other people in the room. Mm-hmm. If they're having a hard or difficult time, we will take care of, we will, we, you know, we're going to make sure that no one is in, in danger here or puts themselves at risk so in a, in a normal human situation. You see somebody crying. Actually, people usually have two, re- two responses, they either stay away from them or they <laughs> Very much, you know, if it's a stranger or they go over to them and say, are you okay? So we were told, don't go over to them. Don't ask if they're okay. Don't put their arm, don't touch them, especially. Uh, just let them work through what they're working through. And it, I thought, oh, I'm not going to cry. I'm going to cry. It was ridiculous. I cried a number of times. And it was because of the, what people, the teachers encouraged us to think about and when we weren't talking. Uh, so it was an extraordinary emotional uh, roller coaster that was exhilarating overall, and you have no access to that if you're uh, if you've never done it before. I did it two more times after that. You did. I have to say, uh, I don't know if I'd ever do it again. Okay, but a piece of me knows that if I do, it will be special. So, so even I, who've done it, <laughs> somewhat uninterested in doing it again. So anyway, it's fascinating. Well, it reminds me of a couple of things we just interviewed an indigenous author who talks about the uh, uh, him doing vision quests when he, when he was younger. And, and that's a, a bit harsher in terms of they drop you off in nature, often naked, but that's you, you are, you are just there not to speak, yeah. just, just to be. And, and the profound sort of coming to turn, coming to terms with yourself and thinking you really, you almost, what what he talked about is like you can't help but struggle with your purpose and your meaning as a human being and 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 I think the the purpose of it is to have people come out and um, look to serve and 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 yeah. look to find their their deep kindness. I also wonder too, you know, the psychedelic movement is so in vogue now, and that's like that's something I experimented with as a sixteen year old. I'm probably less interested in it now as a 55 year old, but I understand I, I, in thinking back on it, I'm like, Oh, I, I get how that was a completely different sort of change of consciousness. 
all of these things, and I talk about religion in the in the book, and passing, yeah. psychotherapy, reading great literature, going to the to a great night of theater. All these things are things that are supposed to, they're wake up calls. They're things to to wake you up, remind you often that you're part of something larger than yourself, uh, to be self-aware, to help you with self-awareness, and possibly to help you chart a path to something uh, different. On that meditation retreat, at one point we were told to go outside, and um, I, I can't remember what the instruction was, but it, my version of what I did that that afternoon was I spent half an hour staring at a bush that had a sparrow in it. And I like birds. I've looked at a lot of birds in my life. I've looked at birds for, you know, 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to watch for half an hour a bunch of sparrows in a bush is overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I couldn't have done it if I'd gotten out of my car, showed up at this place at this uh, retreat center and was and had been told, okay, let's get going, everybody. We're going to go outside and stare at a bird. I, I would have, I would have thought, I would have laughed at it. it but it ha- after two or three days of silence and thinking about what I'm doing in the universe, uh, well, looking at that bird was was I can't actually, I actually can't put it into words any more than a good married, a marriage between two people that's going well can put it into words. It was very profound. I mean, literally, there's a, a two Stanford D school professors who have a new book about brainstorming creativity, and one of their exercises is to look at something for 30 minutes. Really hard to do. It's Most very of the time. hard to do, but, but also you, you can't help but then. I, I remember when I, I didn't know I needed glasses. This was like sophomore year of college. And I got glasses and I'm like, there's definition on trees. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. It was mind blowing. That's and, so and, cool. And, 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 but I really applied it not just to like, this is a thing that happens. Like, what else am I not seeing? You well, know. when I when I learned uh, how to draw, I, I have no artistic, literal artistic ability. If you said draw this, I, I draw a stick figure and it looks awful. But at one point in my life, my wife and I both decided we were going to explore learning how to draw in a more systematic way than whatever was natural to us. And we bought a book called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which is a phenomenal book I recommend. And we started doing drawing exercises at night where you draw your own hand, you might look in the mirror and draw yourself. And through a set of exercises, uh, the author forces you to look at the world. You think, well, I, it's about drawing. And it's not about drawing. It's about seeing. And when you see the world, either with the glasses, a dramatic example, if you didn't have them before and see that definition, or just the way that shapes and light play on uh, the world around us, it's a phenomenal. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a tremendous eye opener. And it, you're always at risk of losing that ability, you know, that ability to see. In your case, if you lost your glasses, you'd know right away, oh, boy, this is so much, this is so inferior. If you're not careful in life, you know, I think you can go through life not looking carefully either at the world around us or the people around us and look mainly at yourself, which is normal. And uh, you miss the chance to, to have some very special experiences, obviously. Um, I posted a quote from your book. I think it was, I know it was on LinkedIn. I don't know if I was on Twitter or not. And I got a huge response. Uh, so the quote was, quote, as we get older, we understand that the pain we have endured, especially heartbreak, hasn't just made us stronger. It has made everything we experience richer and fuller. As we get older, we come to prefer bittersweet chocolate to chocolate that is merely sweet, end quote. First of all, really nice line. G- great Thank writing. You. And, and I, I love bittersweet chocolate. 
and I did not enjoy it as a young person. So that metaphor right. fits. And we talked a bit about pain, but this this kind of goes to a layer deeper. And, and you know, I, I've endured some real tragic things in, in, in my life. And, and it's and I sit here now not happy that those things happen. Exactly. But I'm wiser and I'm kinder yeah. for it. Yeah, I think the most, you know, I think it's Nietzsche who said, uh, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think that's a really, true. I, I think he's wrong. Many yeah. things that harm us uh, without killing us damage us irrevocably and uh, rather than making us stronger. Yet, it is clearly the case that the whole panoply, the whole range of things that we experience through our lives the pain, the joy, uh, make up who we are. And yes, there are many and some many of those lessons I would have preferred to avoid. I would have I would have liked to have a different way of learning something. But often when we look back on them, I, yeah, some people say, "Oh yeah, I, I wouldn't have done it differently. I wouldn't have changed a thing." It's really not the point. The point is is that all of where we are at this moment in our lives is this accumulation of experiences that we've had, memories that we've accumulated. Uh, people that we've connected with or failed to connect with sometimes tragically. And my argument in the book is that it's tempting to think of ourselves as a blank slate fun machine. You know, one of the most interesting experiences for me as an adult is when you're under stress, you're, you're dealing with something maybe like we're talking about, not a, not a full tragedy, but a really difficult, stressful thing. And the truth is, it's really not a big deal. Often, mm-hmm. your flight's delayed. Let's take an example. Yeah, a teacher of mine once used this as an example. You're sitting on the plane and you're you're going nuts because you're worried you're going to miss your connection. Yeah, it's really not a tragedy, and yet our brain takes over, obsesses about it, can't stop thinking about it. And you know, there's this expression: first world problems, third world problems, third world problems are like hunger, starvation, not having a roof. Uh, on a on a bitter cold night, For, most of us don't thank God to have to deal with those things. Right, it doesn't matter. We find other things that ruin our lives. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and your point about kindness, you know, you know, I love that expression. Uh, everyone's in a battle, so be kind. No matter what your material well being is, most of us, even who are materially comfortable, have have deep angst of various kinds from various sources, some are regrets, some are hurt that we've endured at the hands of people that we expected to be kind to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, is that to think, go back to your very first thing, say we should be happy now in many ways. Um, it's wrong to think of life as a day at the amusement park where the best thing, your, your, your job is to figure out which ride you like the most. Right. I think the most interesting part of life is the non-amusement park right part of it. Not the not the pain and suffering, but the idea that there's uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen next. And I think part of the unease that we have with these decisions that we face that are big life decisions is we want a little more certainty about how it's going to turn out. And there isn't any. Yeah. And part of what I'm encouraging there with the bittersweet metaphor is that you embrace it. It's going to be bittersweet. It's the essence of the of the journey. You know, and you really don't want to go on a journey where it's all sweet all the time. That's not a life. That's that's childhood if you're spoiled. <laughs> right. Adults go through things that that 
prick us, that squeeze us, that pain us. And ideally, you bring all of that into your conversations, into your marriage, into your friendship, into your the loves and, and, and interactions you have with the people around you. And I think it makes us often better. It makes us life have a richer texture. I mean, this is, this is what connects to my field of improvisation, which is it's a practice in being in the moment. Um, yeah. And you don't linger in the past or the future. You're fiercely in the moment. And your job is to make your partner look good. And you yeah. have to listen to the end of their sentences. All things we don't do as human beings. <laughs> and so many b- broken people find their way to these improv classes. And you're like, so oh, my God, this is your, you're, you're using this as, as therapy, which is fine. That, that's fine and good. Because, you know, no one, no one goes, I, I, I always say no one got into the comedy business uh, um, because they're h- highly functional, right? I mean, the, but, but that, I think that's just true of human beings. And I'm going to ask you for a yes and question in a moment. But one of the things that you talk about a lot in the book is this idea of flourishing. And I interview a lot of authors. I did one entire podcast on flourishing um, that was not an academic. And so I'm just curious for, from an ac- academic sp- background, and I don't know if you mean the term academically, uh, but talk to us about what you mean when you talk about flourishing. Well, I think I'm going to comfort your listeners. I'm not going to talk about it as an academic. Uh, okay. I'm, not an Ar- I'm not an Aristotle scholar, for example. Yep. So when he talks about eudaimonic, you, I can't even say it. So that's even better. The Greek word that is often translated as uh, flourishing, I could usually say it. It's a long okay. day here. Yep. I'm in Israel. It's almost seven o'clock at night. Yeah. Um, eudaimonia. That's that's how you say you got it. it. So eudaimonia is the Greek, but I might not have pronounced it correctly. But but at least I've got all the syllables. Um, Aristotle write, writes about that, and I don't study that in a academic way. What I'm interested in is what it means to have a life well lived. And I, again, it's not a day at the amusement park. It involves challenging oneself. It obviously involves growth. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about aspiration. Who do we aspire to be? Who would you, mm-hmm. we know you, you might know who you are. A lot of us struggle with that too, but mm-hmm. we also should be thinking about who we want to become. And to see your life as, as I suggested in one of the later chapters, as a work of art, as a craft, as something, as seeing yourself as, as a, an entity that you craft into something finer, something more beautiful, something more kinder, something more connected to other people, something more aware, something more uh, purposeful is I think a lot of what growing up is about. And for me, those are all ways of thinking about flourishing. It's also involves the gifts that we're given, right? We're given a bunch of gifts. We often don't know what they are. We don't know what we're going to actually end up loving or what we're very good at. And a good chunk of life is figuring that out and um, using what you have to um, interact with the world. Um, again, it's not a maximization thing. Oh, I've got to make as much money as possible with whatever gift I got. That's not what it's about. It's about finding out, exploring. A lot of it's exploring who you can be to decide who you want to try to become. And I think you, you, it strikes me at least that flourishing happens inside communities and, and with other people. And, and part of the, again, part of the, I think the superpower of improvisation, like I, I, I believe in uh, meditation and, and uh, mindfulness, but a lot of that is done solely uh, by yes. yourself. <clears throat> and our work is done, it's noisy, it's with other people. So it for, forces you kind of like to have your system one, your system two brain go constantly back, back and forth. Um, and 
again, the world we live in now is 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 so there's so much canceling and so much, you know, um, uh, muting and 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 all that. And uh, we find ourselves like I I don't know how we solve anything <laughs> that way. Um, and so when when we if we're going to attempt to be flourishing, I think we have to see the humanity in others. I think just you have to. I, well, I, I could agree with I, I obviously I agree with that very strongly, and in particular, um, I, I mentioned in the book that certain things meditation is one uh, that silent meditation retreat we talked about is an example yeah. that on the outside looks kind of self-indulgent i'm going to go explore myself for five days mm-hmm. bye <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not going to interact with you my friend spouse whatever it is and i'm not going to interact with anyone who's there i'm going to be all by myself uh and and i'm going to be gazing at my navel and i'm going to be uh extremely self-centered yeah, but that, that was not that. my experience. Yeah. My yeah. experience was in the aftermath of those lonely, self-focused days, I became much more appreciative of the people around me, hmm. uh, people in my past. Um, we did an exercise. I'll give you an example. Yeah. We were told we had 45 minutes for this. It's hard to do for three minutes, but if you went again, not the first time off the bus, but after you've been meditating for a few days, uh, in that kind of environment, we were told, start with your first memory of somebody who was kind to you, probably your parents, and work your way forward to the present, thinking about the people who have done kindness to you. Hmm. And um, I thought, well, that's not going to take very long. Uh, you know, I can think I can I know who those people are and I'll so I'll think through them and yeah, I got 45 minutes. So uh I started thinking about teachers who had changed me in all kinds of ways that were profound. Uh, I got a much deeper appreciation of, of my parents uh, because again, I wasn't just, well, there's my parents start thinking about time as many examples as you can of what your parents did for you with love. Yeah. That's if that's all you did for 45 minutes, even 15, just did that for five minutes a day with people who were kind to you. You'll be a different person. And when I got back from that retreat, I called two people I hadn't talked to in decades and huh. thanked them and thanked them. I, you know, I had to, I, I was, yeah. I was just overwhelmed by it. So it's a fascinating example, but I, you yeah. know, I love, I love your improv example because life is improvisation. Conversation sure. is improvisation and we don't know how to do it very well Mm-mm. in my experience. And we don't teach it, nope. right. Unless you're in a workshop on how to be an imp- improv person and you know i I have a chapter in the book where i talk about not seeing yourself as the center of the universe but rather interact with people in an ensemble you're not the star of the show Mm -hmm. that is so hard to do (laughs) and when you can do it which is what i think probably improv helps you helps you do and helps you appreciate the power of it, it it's very it's very intense very powerful yeah uh sheldon patinkin who's one you know not a founding member but an early member of second city used to challenge the phrase, your, your group is only as good as its weakest member. And he would say your ensemble is only as good as its ability to compensate for the weakest member because all of mm-hmm. us are going to be the weakest member at some time. Yeah. And that, so, and that, so getting people to make that reflexive um, mm-hmm. is uh, almost magical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's a great example because I don't think I wrote about this in the book, but it's something I think about a lot. There are a lot of us and I've been this person myself many times where I'm not going to let myself be the weakest link. 
I'm going to be obsessed. I'm going to be so focused on excellence. Mm-hmm. And that's a virtue in our society, right? You're, you're taught that. Yeah. And of course you fail. <laughs> that may be your impulse, but you fail. And then what do you do with that? Well, most of us, many of us beat ourselves up. We say, well, I let the team down. I let myself down. I betrayed myself. I betrayed my principles. I was sloppy. I was careless, whatever it was. I broke this. I dropped that. I didn't keep my promise. All those examples. And we often then punish ourselves and we make a virtue of that because we say, oh, that way I won't do it the next time because I'll have this horrible guilt and feeling I don't want to have that. So I'll, I'll be more conscientious, more excellent. The problem with that, and I, I've lived that, I lived that way for a long time. The problem with that, you know, the, the Buddhists and other traditions, uh, as part of Judaism like this as well, that says, forgive yourself. And, and you say, well, I'm not going to do that because then I'll get careless. I'll become less conscientious. I'll be less excellent. But it actually is the case, in my view, that it opens up the possibility of being less judgmental, not just of yourself, mm-hmm. but of the people around you. So that weakest link, which you will be one of the times, and you'll go, oh, I, yeah, yeah, you beat yourself up. And I did a terrible job that night. I, I was ashamed of myself. I'll never forgive myself for that. I'm a... It's horrible. That gives you the sort of permission to treat the other weak links badly when they have a human moment. And then the whole thing doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And if you go the other way and you say, I recognize that we all have bad days. We all have shortcomings. We all have flaws. I'm going to forgive myself and others. It's not a license for abuse. Not like I'm going to you know, tolerate anything. But if I'm going to be forgiving and recognize the humanity of the people around me, you have an ability to connect with those other people that you don't have when you're just, you're always judging them and, and, and beating them up because, Hey, I beat myself up. If I did that, I would beat myself up. So I have, I have, I'm entitled to beat you up. And I think that's a disaster. And I think that Patinka improv vision of what can I do to help the weakest member rise and overcome whatever think they're going through or whatever it is, it is just is fantastic. Yeah. 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 So we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. You have some in the book, but I'm wondering if you have a, a story for us today. The optimization maximization mindset um, has us saying no too often and not enough yeses because we're told, oh, you know, it's a true statement. What's coming next? Time is your scarcest resource, so use it wisely. So when someone asks you to do something, often you'll say no virtuously because you say to yourself, oh, well, if I'm always saying yes, I'll be exploited and, mm-hmm. and, and I'll, I'll miss the chance to do all these other things. So there's a lot of productivity hacks and, and uh, advice books and others that say, you know, learning to say no is very important. Mm-hmm. And that's true. They're, they're, if you say yes all the time, you can make a lot of waste a lot of time if you're not careful. People could take advantage of you. Um, but as I've gotten older, I say uh, yes more often where I used to say no, because I like trying to see what's going to happen from it. Now, things will happen if I say no also, right? If I don't go on that trip, uh, if I don't take that invitation. But a lot of times I take invitations to do things that quote aren't worth it because I like to see what's going to happen. And, I'm, and I like to... The, 
you know, if you're a religious person, you think of it as part of the divine order. If you're not a religious person, you might think of it as karma or just the universe will, will make it work out. Uh, but for me, as I've gotten older, I say, I say yes. Um, I say yes more often. I meet people for coffee who quote, I don't have time for. Yeah. Um, and I like to think that things happen in those meetings. First of all, they make me, they change me in all kinds of ways that I don't fully can't observe. But more than that, I, I, often things happen that are really pleasant and unexpected and uh, serendipitous. And I, I love that. And sometimes, by the way, they're powerful. I, I took a trip once to do an, ob- I had an obligation uh, that I could have gotten out of. Mm-hmm. And this is a good example of this kind of phenomenon. I had an obligation. I could have gotten out of it. And I thought, no, well, I think it's the right thing. I think I'm going to go, even though I'm really not happy about it. <laughs> I got better things to do. I, can, I have an excuse. I have a great excuse. They won't know that it's just an excuse. I'll, I'll just stay home. But I didn't. I went. Uh, and I'm really glad I went. Um, I had two conversations on that trip that I, I've never forgotten. Hmm. Uh, I'll share one of them that's not yeah. too revealing. Um, this was a this was a funeral and uh, that I could have gotten out of. It was out of town. It was far out of town. I went a long way for the funeral for reasons that were appropriate. It wasn't just, it was a nice thing to do. I, I had a good, as I said, it was an obligation, Yeah, but it was an obligation I could have gotten out of, you know, like, like many situations like this, but I chose not to. And I went, one of the things that happened in that is uh, I met uh, a widow at that, um, at that event who I didn't know very well. And I asked her how she was doing. And she said that she really missed her husband. And I thought, well, that's, you know, not surprising. But the way she said it was more of a confession. And I was, um, I didn't know her that well. I was surprised to get that level of response from her. And then she said something I'll never forget. She said, I talk to him every day. Mm -hmm. And I said, of course you do. And she said, my friends tell me I shouldn't, that I, I, I need to get over it. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and I don't mean to disagree with your friends, but if I were you, I'd talk to him every day. And, uh, you know, I lost my dad. It was, a, it was a very powerful moment. And part of the power of that moment, and I have a handful of others like this in my life that I've been lucky enough to experience. I wish I had twice as many. I wish I had two handfuls, is that incredible, raw vulnerable honesty that most of the time we don't share with each other. That's right. Uh, and th- this was interesting because it was not a close friend who was just yeah, confiding. Yeah. I mean, it was a relative stranger. And the, when my father passed away two years ago and my mom is, thank God, still alive. And she's, uh, I'm hoping she'll make her 90th birthday this, this coming November. She often is in an office in her, her little study in her house where there's a picture of my dad that I took. And um, I said, you know, mom, it's really nice. It's there. And she's away. I talk to him all the time. I, um, said, I would too. I talk to him all the time too. It, it, yeah. You know, I don't have, I don't work in one place with a picture of him. And so yeah. we have a different relationship, not this different for a, a spouse and a son, but for my mom versus me, but that's, um, 
I think that's okay. But the part I was really emphasizing was I'm really glad I made that trip. If the only thing that had cut, forget the, it was nice. I fulfilled an obligation, but the only thing that had happened was that 60 seconds, it was only 60 seconds. Not Mm -hmm. like we sat down and talked for an hour about how she missed her husband and all that. I, a fellow human being opened her heart to me and I, I was so blessed to be standing there for that moment. And if I stayed home, I'd have missed it. And she wouldn't have received it. And I think she needed someone to tell her it was okay. So uh, those moments are what I crave. And I think when you say yes, you get more of them. Um, so that's, that's my SM. That's a excellent yes and story. The book is called <laughs> Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions that Define Us. Uh, Russ Roberts, thank you for coming on the show. That was great fun. Thank you. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive 